I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the sailor's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing, culture, and life, past, present, and future. Coming up on today's episode, a holiday in Marbella turns into a run-in with the cops and one of the world's most notorious gunrunners. But first, let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who has traveled the world, raced international 14s, and crossed the Atlantic countless times, a published author who has written for both stage and screen, Mr. Scott Dodson. Hey Todd, how are you today? I'm doing great. So what is today's episode about? Yeah, today's episode is is about being arrested in Marbella and uh, Marbella, Spain, which is a really, really beautiful place and a super much. It's a super fun place to be. Um, it's got tons of golf courses, great sailing, um, mountains are close by, tremendous food. But when you cruise and you sail, it's important to get out of your boat and to shake that whole cruising persona you have i kind of look at it's like get out of your monastery and get out there and and see the world and experience the world and this is uh, a story about uh me um accidentally coming across and meeting and becoming a friend of uh one of the world's uh most notorious weapons merchants great take it away scott December 29th, 1999, some of you will remember that there was a big to-do about what was going to happen when all the computers would slip over from the 1990s into the new millennia of 2000. It was a big deal. A lot of talk, a lot of worry. Uh, IT professionals were probably making more money than they could handle. Everybody thought their clocks were going to stop. Time would stop. The whole world would crash and burn on this sort of new internet um, step, so to speak. Um, and we were worried a little bit and concerned that some of our navigation and GPS systems, etc., on the boat would you know, stop working for some reason. So there, there was this air of uncertainty. It was, but also there was an air of this was the new millennia, 2000. I picked up a Ferretti 90 um, in Barcelona, or Barcelona, as they say. The owner of the boat, um, a Finnish fellow, and his wife, um, both very crazy, um, both with more money than you could shake a stick at. I ended up building a couple of boats for him and a variety of other things and had a weird time with the dude. But in any case, this was my first um, first sort of job uh, for him. So we were going to take this Freddy 90 from Barcelona and we're going to take it down to Marbella. Now, Marbella, Spain is in the Costa del Sol. It's, it's an absolutely beautiful place. Um, it's got great beaches. The mountains are very close. Uh, 
it is known as sort of the Spanish version of Monaco. Lots and lots and lots of rich people, especially rich people who are quote-unquote somewhat criminal people from Andorra. So on the 29th, we arrived uh, with the boat and uh, put it into the slip in the marina. It's a beautiful little marina. Um, if you come across the ocean, Atlantic Ocean, come through the Straits of Gibraltar, and after you come out of Gibraltar, just, you know, hang left, go port, and go up the coast. And Marbella is, you know, sailboat-wise, is just a couple hours about, uh, north of that. And it's just a lovely place to sort of stop, take a breath, um, before you go into the Mediterranean um, full bore. The place was established in the Phoenician times uh, and Roman times and all sorts of times. It's always been there and it's, it's considered very wealthy. There's some lovely architecture. Um, Antonio Banderas lives there. Um, uh, Sean Connery used to live there. There's a lot of, you know, celebrity um, sightings in Marbella. So I had to boat and uh, we're all tied up and ready to go. And, and the Finnish owner flew down with his uh, family. And uh, we, were, we decided to go out. In fact, uh, we took the boat out, went down to Gibraltar because they had never seen Gibraltar and they, they thought it was sort of interesting. And Gibraltar is interesting. I mean, it's a uh, very English, uh, cannons, redcoats. Um, it is a place that there's all this kind of quasi-tax criminality, I might say. You know, this is where you hide your money, um, you know, offshore investments and... You know, it's just got this really wonderful, uh, as I say, wonderful seediness about it. And Marbella is a little bit like that, except, you know, Marbella is filled with people with very wealthy people. Lots of money. I mean, really ridiculous amounts of money, which if you're just a regular guy like me coming from the United States and, and running boats in the Mediterranean as a captain and being paid, you know, decent money, but not great money. And I was not rich at all. Um, these people are sort of like the lower class of rich people or the no class of rich people. And when you see them in their little arrogant, we just made all our millions last week kind of attitudes and you should do everything because this money makes me a better human being than you. When you see people like this, they're worth laughing at, to be quite honest. And that's kind of the atmosphere. And it, it was, you know, the holiday was coming up. Everybody's worried about uh, um, computers failing and all the rest of that kind of stuff. So it was a kind of an interesting uh, atmosphere at the time. So we went down to Gibraltar with the boat and took, took the family down there. We came back um, the same day. It's a quick ride. Um, the weather was horrible. Um, it was very cold. I mean, this is December. It's it's cold in in the south of Spain at this this time. I mean, it's not snowing. It can, but it's not 
you know, it's not uh, summertime. And so we went through the whole process. Now, on the 30th, the next day after our little trip, um, no, I should say the 31st, after our little trip down to Gibraltar and back, um, I was summoned to the port captain's office, which is very unusual. But, you know, I went anyway. And the port captain barely could speak English. We had to find somebody that could speak English and Spanish. Um, so I was standing in the port captain's office, and he was telling me, in essence, that I had some stolen property on the boat. I had no clue what he was talking about. And I said, okay, do you guys want to come and tell me what it is? Should we look at it? And they said, it's a scooter. It's stolen. It's been reported stolen. And I said, no, I don't think so. I said, it may be reported stolen, but in fact, it belongs to the owner of the boat. And then they asked, do I have papers? And I said, well, I don't have them on me. You just can't ask me to come blind. But yeah. So I went back to the boat um, with a policeman uh, in tow, uh, went on the boat, and I spoke to the owner about this scooter that was sitting on the upper deck of the, the vessel. And I said, we have the papers for this um, scooter. And I said, because somebody has reported it stolen. And he, he looked at me, and I could see in his eyes that there was some sort of conflict that was not resolved and that I was going to take the brunt of it. In essence, what had happened is the previous captain had uh, gone and bought a scooter for the owner. The owner just sent him money, bought the scooter, but he bought it and he kept the scooter in his name. He licensed it in Spain in his name. And the owner, just because he had paid for it, he sent the money and everything else like that. There was some sort of, you know, contention. And the the previous captain uh, was uh, very distraught and angry at the owner for you know, perceived not paying wages and all the rest. And if you're a new captain and you know, the old guy is complaining about wages and, you know, being ripped off by the owner, it kind of sends up some red flags and it makes your presence um, very uncomfortable. But anyway, the owner just said, well, we'll take care of it. I've got some papers and I'll get it all sorted out and this, that, and other thing. And, and I said, okay. And then I went back to um, the port office with the policeman in tow I explained that we'll have the papers and all the rest of the stuff, but we can't get those until after the first of the year because they will be in the law office and the lawyers are off for the holidays. So the port captain says, okay, but you can't leave. You're going to have to stay here. I said, well, we, we intend on actually technically leaving the boat here um, because we were going to sell the boat and we're going to sell it um, in a brokerage in uh, Marbella. And then we were, the family would fly home. Um, I would take all the belongings that were on the boat and personal items, throw them into a van, 
and drive back to France, uh, where we were based in Antibes. And that was that was the plan. So we were going to spend the New Year's in Marbella. So moving forward, we ended up having um, a kind of awkward day on the 31st. Um, there was a party on the boat uh, for New Year's. Uh, my mate and I worked the party. Um, we served drinks. We made food. Um, other people came to the boat um, that were friends of the owner. Um, everybody seemed to have a really, really great time. And, um, you know, everything ticked over to the first. But one incident happened just prior, and that was on the 31st. I went shopping uh, with the lady of the family, and um, she asked me to come with her, and she went, and she was in a jewelry, she went to a jewelry store in the old part of uh, Marbella, which is just, you know, lovely little streets, very chic shops, everything's very expensive, and she went in. Um, to this shop, and she asked me as sort of like uh, a bodyguard, so to speak. And um, even though I'm not a bodyguard, but, you know, needless to say, I was there as a sort of show of force, so to speak. So we're in this, she was in the shop, shopping for some jewelry. Her husband didn't want to go. He just stayed back on the boat, and he was a little bit of a flake. So I'm outside, I'm, you know, I didn't go in. I'm just kind of leaning up against the wall and watching her inside and trying to pretend that I was a, a body, a bodyguard. When this Syrian man came walking up and looked in the window and he looked over at me and, and trailing behind him were two bodyguards. I mean, real bodyguards. Um, they were big guys, carrying guns, um, easily recognizable. And I could tell that this guy was, this Syrian guy was pretty, um, you know, he was a heavyweight in terms of protection and, and stuff like that. And I'm just leaning up against the thing. I was, I was dressed in, you know, khaki pants and a white polo shirt with, um, you know, just in a hat and sunglasses and and my normal big ass fancy Rolex watch and I was just leaning up against the wall um really not making eye contact or paying attention to him or even none none of that just like okay here's another guy da, 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 da. I might mention that I knew he was Syrian because the summer before I had actually um sailed on my own boat um, all the way around the coast of Turkey into Ankara. And then from Ankara, I, I got a visa to sail into Syria. I went from Syria uh, into Israel and um, then from Israel to, to Cyprus and Cyprus back up into Greece, uh, to Rhodes, Greece, where I was based. So I, you know, there was a good kind, I, I kind of got a good understanding of, you know, who is where and what and who might be whom and where they might come from and this, that, and other thing. 
And uh, he also, the other giveaway was he had a lapel pin with a, a Syrian flag on it. And I would have never in a million years recognized it, except when you are in a place like Syria, they, everybody has a flag. Everybody's flying a Syrian flag. Everybody. It's everywhere. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. It's like in Turkey. Everybody, Turkish flags are everywhere. Um, you know, there's a big Turkish flag in front of a donut shop. There's a big, uh, the market everywhere. There'd be Turkish flags. Any case, so I recognized that, and and that sort of gave me a clue that this guy was uh, a Syrian guy. Um, he's very, you know, casual, but uh, you know, expensive clothes, well dressed. Um, and and then the the lady of the family, she called me into the shop. She gave me a wave and I, I went into the shop and she asked me what I thought about this and thought about that. And, and she was showing me these uh, necklaces and they were very gaudy and very bad taste and incredibly expensive. And, and he came in the shop right after I went in and his wife followed. I hadn't seen her, but she was in another shop and the bodyguards were sort of watching both of them. And his wife came in. And so they were standing next to us, you know, looking at this jewelry. I wasn't there to buy shit. I, <laughs> I couldn't afford anything in this jewelry store, you know, and, and I couldn't buy a glass of water there. And, and so they're talking, 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 talking. And, the, and then I, I say to the lady, that okay I'll, I'll wait outside i said i like yeah this is nice this is nice whatever she says okay let me think about this and i said okay i'll wait outside so because the shop was pretty small and i was getting a little claustrophobic in there so i went outside and then the the syrian man left his wife in there and um uh at the time i smoked so i lit up a cigarette and i was smoking a cigarette and he lit up a cigarette and smoking a cigarette and this is the one thing that i honestly do miss about smoking cigarettes is is the camaraderie of and the ability to meet people you would never even talk to if you didn't smoke um you know smokers have this whole like okay hey how you doing i'm smoking a cigarette you're smoking a cigarette so it, you know you strike up a good conversation where normally you wouldn't strike up a conversation with that person at all so we just started just chattering about, I said, oh, yeah, you know, she's just that. Another thing, we got a boat Friday night. He said, oh, really? He said, I've been thinking about buying a boat. And I said, well, I'm, the boat's for sale. You know, after the family leaves, you're welcome to come down and, and take a look at the boat. And, um, you know, it's at the brokerage and, you know, it's being listed there and all the rest of this kind of stuff. Really, really? And you're the captain. Yeah, I'm the captain. Oh, wow, really? You're an American. Oh, yeah, yeah. Da, da, da. So we had this conversation. Um, it's just a sort of casual conversation. Um, the bodyguards were sort of looking at me with like evil eyes. So anyway, the lady of the boat comes out. Um, she's got a little bag and everything else like that. So she's just, so we walk back to the boat and they get on the boat and she thanks me very much for, you know, just being security, etc. And I say, yeah, no worries, you know, just part of the job. And um, so, and the Syrian general, you know, it was just a passing conversation. So we have the whole party, the New Year's Eve. Um, the millennial thing did not happen. Nobody's computers freaked out and broke. Uh, GPS continued to work. And, um, you know, the watch just turned over from 1999 to 2000 um, with 
really kind of a petering out effect. So everybody was pretty, pretty happy about that. And um, we had a nice party on the boat. Um, I was a little bit nervous about the whole boat papers thing. So on the 3rd, I got summoned, January 3rd of 2000, I got summoned to the um, port captain's office. And they asked me about the papers. They said, okay, this is time. Da, 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 da. I said, okay. I said, I haven't gotten the papers yet, but we're not going anywhere. And I, I kind of treated it as a kind of, like, this is like a non-incident in my world. And first of all, I'm just the yacht captain. I'm not the owner. And the scooter happens to be on the boat I'm running, but the scooter is legitimately paid for by the owner, and the owner will attest to that. His lawyers will attest to that. We just haven't gotten around to doing it. And we're going to get the papers from the other guy, too, because he's obligated to do that um, from the former captain. So we're sitting, I'm sitting on the uh, this kind of stool. Um, it's the best way I could describe it is, is a wooden stool. And I'm sitting, I'm sitting on it. It's a little bit lower than, you know, like, you know, like a chair or just slightly lower. So you feel kind of like diminished. And um, the poor captain says to me, this is on the third. And that morning on the third, the entire family had left. So I was by myself on the boat. And, and the owner of the boat had promised me that he would have everything taken care of by the end of the day. He says, as soon as I get back, he says, I'll have the lawyers, I'll have all the papers sent. We had the fax number for the port office. Um, we had everything, everything was all set up. So that, that, you know, it was an easy thing. We explained it to the port captain. Um, we explained it to the policeman that was there. We went through the whole process and said, yep, all the papers will be here this evening. Um, the owner's flying home to Finland to get the papers. Da, 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 da. Everything was going to be done. Nothing to worry about. There is no stolen property on the boat. And I'm sitting on this little stool. And then after I give this whole explanation, I know that the owner is in the air, so I can't call him um, to help me out in any way. And he says, they pick me up um, and they put handcuffs on me. And they say, okay, come on, you're going to jail. And I was like... No, I, no, 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 no. All the papers are fine. This is, you know, we're fine. We're good. You know, there's no crime being committed here. Okay. And I don't know how many people know this, but if you're ever arrested um, or detained as a U.S. citizen abroad, the first thing you do is to call your closest U.S. embassy or consulate um this is really key and they're the only ones that are going to help you out now what they can do is they'll they'll provide a list for you for you know local attorneys that speak english um they'll contact your friends your family if you want um you know they can provide all the materials that you need for the court case they'll they'll translate the Spanish, for example, Spanish into English for you. Um, they'll make sure that you're getting appropriate care, you know. So, you know, they're they're your advocate um, in general. 
okay? They'll let you know what's going on and, and how this process is going on. So as I was arrested, okay, and I have a legit passport, I'm, I'm okay, I'm, everything is okay. As I'm arrested, I say I want to call, I want to call the embassy, the consulate. And, and the Spanish would, okay, yeah, no worries. When we get to the police station, you could do that. So they put me in this um, little car. I don't remember what kind it was, but it was small. And my thoughts were, you know, in America, we have big, big police cars. We like big police cars with big engines in them and stuff. I think it was a Fiat I was in. It was like his little Fiat. It's like, this is the police car. It's got the little light on the top. It seems quaint, but you know what? That's fine. That's just the way they roll. But I should say in addition to calling the consulate or embassy, is they can't get you out of jail. Um, they won't go to court with you. Um, they can, they can't provide like legal advice. They're not lawyers. They, you know, they're not going to represent you in the court. Um, they're not going to actually serve as official interpreters or translators for you. And they won't pay any kind of legal fees, medical fees or anything that you accrue when you're in this jail. So just know that you've got to, you know, they're, they're there as an advise, advisory and they will do some things, but it's kind of disappointing to a certain degree. So I go to the police station and um, they sit me on a bench and they take my handcuffs off and which surprised me because usually in America you always see the movies and shows where they handcuff you and then they take your handcuff and they handcuff you to a bar and you know you're cuffed all the time but here it was very casual and they just sat down and I was sitting on a long bench and I'm sitting there for a long time and I said you know I want to call the consulate I want to do this I want to do that and they're they're like mm -hmm, okay yeah we don't understand no hablo inglés. So off they went. And I'm just sitting by myself um, on this bench. A few hours later, after being given some water, and um, I actually had, I think I had a cup of coffee, in works this Syrian guy that I had met at the jewelry store with his wife. And he goes to the desk and he's talking to the Spanish police officers um, like he knows them, like they're old friends. And they're getting something for him. And he, he's at the table, and I'm behind him, and he's talking to these guys. And, you know, they're all running around, you know, getting his stuff. And, you know, it's like he's like a big deal and all the rest of this kind of stuff. And I'm sitting there, you know, no handcuffs, but I'm sitting on the bench. And he turns around and he sees me. Hey, how are you? And I said, well, I'm not so well. You know, <laughs> I'm in the police station. So we start to have this kind of little conversation. He says, well, he says, is there anything I can do to help you? He says, I know these people. I can help you. And I said, well, is there's some paperwork that has to come. I'm waiting for the owner to land in um, Helsinki. Um, and to get home and to get the paperwork and then have the paperwork uh, faxed to the Port Authority. But basically they're saying I have stolen goods 
on the boat. I have a, a scooter, and I'm telling him the whole story. And he's standing there. He's very interested in what I'm saying, and he's nodding his head and this, that, and other thing. And then he just sort of sidles up to me, and he sits down and right next to me. And he says, you know, a lot of times right and wrong are too close to call. And I agreed with him. Yeah, I said, I think at times it is too close to call. We live in a fairly black and white world. Um, us and them, them and us. But you're right. Sometimes in this international world of sailing around and there's right and there's wrong. And sometimes even being right is wrong. So we began to have this sort of interesting, sort of philosophical question. And while we were doing this, he was very interested in this. And it seemed to me that, that he didn't get to talk to people like myself very often. Um, because in fact, this person that I was talking to, he introduced himself as Kassar, was Al Kassar. He's a very, very famous and in jail today um, merchant of death. Alcazar was a sales uh, arms, sold arms, millions of dollars worth of arms to Croatia and Bosnia and Somalia. He's just violated every United Nations arms embargo. Um, there was a question with his passport, which is why he was there. Um, he was getting an quote-unquote um, passport from Argentina, which people were having some problems with, and he was having some problems with, and he had to actually come down to the police station to have his picture taken to be put in the Argentinian passport, which actually turned out to be um, a false passport. Um, he, he applied for it under false pretenses. And, and this was, this was sort of a, a nagging problem, as he, would, as he said. It's just a nagging problem. He says it happens. It's just a nagging problem. Well, in 1982, he was also arrested um, for his involvement in the Achille Lauro hijacking, uh, which is a very famous, um, you know, ship hijacking. And um, he provided uh, illegal weapons and the vehicles, and he actually had spent a year in jail before he was released on bail. And he was found not guilty of these charges. But he is a, he's, he's a pretty well-known um, guy in the criminal world, in the, let's say, the arms business. But he was also incredibly rich. Um, a lot has been written about his character. Um, there's been movies about his character. There's a lot of things of this nature about him. Um, he's been in magazines and Paris Match and all the New Yorkers always talked about it. I mean, he had something to do with the Contras and Oliver North. And this is a whole period of conspiracy and weapons and, and all this sort of international intrigue and stuff like that. But he was really... Um, 
He was really a nice guy. He was a business guy. There wasn't any sort of thing that I would say, I would look at him and say, oh, this seems, you seem like a nefarious human being. You seem like an evil human being. This is a guy just out making money. And money was his thing. Money, money, money. That's all he thought about was how to make money. But he enjoyed the flamboyance of the money. He enjoyed the whole live today like there's no tomorrow kind of concept. So here we are sitting on this wooden bench in a police station. He's waiting to go get his picture taken for his false passport. And I'm waiting to get papers faxed to the police station so that I can get out of this whole stolen property situation. And it was like, here's a criminal and a quasi-criminal, and we're sitting there talking. And I always ask myself, I just, what did we, what did we talk about? You know, we talked about, you know, things, how the governments have two rules. There's, you know, what the government publicly says and this sort of bravado of the government is always right. And then there's this other thing, how the world really works. You know, these arms are sold because the governments somewhat sanction them. You know, things move around the world that are sanctioned and not sanctioned and 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 money goes into this Swiss account. It comes out of that Swiss account. This stuff has always existed. It's never stopped existing and it continues it will continue to exist no matter what laws and rules are put into place because the governments are the ones who don't want to abide by the rules. Because if they want to do something that's against the rules, they'll do it. They'll find somebody to do it for them. Okay? And if if that opportunity comes to you, where you can make millions of dollars for, say, transferring cargo from Poland to Croatia, uh, yeah, why not? Do it. You make millions. Walk away from it. But you can't. That's the problem. And that's sort of what we, um, what I was talking to about with Alcacer. So how money and boats and yachts and all the rest of this stuff, it's so addictive. And that you almost, in a sense, kind of lose your mind. And we were just sitting there just having this real philosophical chat. And he was explaining to me the, the ins and outs and the frustrations and and you know of doing business internationally and and he was sort of moving up to the point where he was kind of recruiting me to a certain degree like saying well your boat you can move back and forth. you can go here and there how much weight would a boat like that carry you know he's asking a lot of very pertinent questions that your average boat shopper yacht shopper would not ask and I, I explained to him, you know, that we were fairly free to move back and forth between countries. We did have to check in. Very rarely would um, customs or any authorities ever come on the boat. And if they did, they never inspected the boat. They would sit, you know, in the aft cabin and we would just, we're in the salon and we'd have a conversation and they'd be served drinks and we'd stamp papers and they would leave. And that was my extent. The extent of me knowing that was close to 20 years at that point. 
he went up, he got up and he went into uh, another office. They took his picture. He came out and he said to me, he said, look, um, I just asked these guys if they could let you go. Um, and I said that, that you're a good guy and you're not going to go anywhere. And I, I really wanted to come and see, see your boat. I told him you, that was your boat. And he was like confusing that aspect of it. And I said, oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. He says, so you can go. Um, and uh, he said, well, I'm having a party. Um, and I think this was the sixth. He said, I'm having a party um, at my uh, at my house. Uh, why don't you come? I think you'll I think you'll like it. Um, there's lots of interesting people and some celebrities and stuff like that. And um, we have some great food. So, you know, come on up. I said, oh, oh, okay, okay. Well, where is it? And he says, well, it's uh, gave me the name. It's uh, Palacio di uh, Mifaldi, which is the Palace of My Virtue. And he had been given the nickname by reporters as the Prince of Marbella which was very interesting and fun. So I thought, this is cool. So he leaves, goes outside where his bodyguards were working, and he climbs into a, a brand-new Rolls-Royce, and he drives away. The police officer comes over to me. He says, yes, everything is okay. Um, you know, uh, Senor um, Alcazar has said that you're a good guy and you're not going anywhere. We know where your boat is. And he said, when you do get the papers in, you please bring them to us and everything will be okay. I said, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, and I then they asked me if I wanted to call the embassy. And I said, no, I'm, I'm good without the embassy. Thank you. And I left. I, I actually literally I had to take a taxi back because the police station is a little far from the marina. So I took a taxi back to the marina. I got on the boat, and my maid at the time, uh, Florence, um, was sort of bopping around and, you know, cleaning up and this, that, another thing. And the second I got back there, I look up, and um, the scooter is gone. And I, I, I said, how did the scooter disappear? And she said, oh, uh, the police came and they, they took it. And it was the guy, the broker, had actually helped them. So it's the scooter is actually in the broker's office. I said, okay. Uh, so anyway, um, I, I, I went to the broker's office. I'm just like sweating bullets at this point. I'm just like so tired of all this nonsense. I go in. He explains to me that the poor captain had asked him to hold the scooter until you know all the papers were done and i assured him he, he this is the boat broker speaking he said they they assured him that the boat the scooter did belong to the boat and everything is copacetic and and i'm sorry they had to arrest you and all the rest i hope everything is all right and i said yeah i said yeah i met a really nice guy named alcazar and he looked at him his face just dropped you you met alcazar really I said, yeah, he's invited me up to his house. Do you know where it is? Oh, he said, just give him the name. Every taxi cab driver knows exactly where it is. You're so lucky. You're so lucky to go up there. I would love to go up there. I said, well, he invited me. I don't know if it's a plus one or whatever the case may be, but, you know, I'm going. He says, no, 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 you have to be very careful with these people. 
be very careful. I said, well, he is interested in looking at the boat. And then his, of course, boat broker eyes. Somebody interested in the boat I'm selling. So he was very excited about that. So I finally went back. I sort of got the I got the boat sorted out. I get everything going, and I spent some time, you know, in a cafe right across in the marina. There's a there's a little road that goes in front of the marina, and there's restaurants all the way along the the front, and people will drive uh, their fancy cars. Like, don't even think if you got the best Mercedes AMG in the world and you drive down this street you'll be booed it's not good enough you know it has to be something exotic all right it has to be has to be over the top ferraris and over the top lamborghinis and all the uh, you know like uh, one of a kind mclarens that cost four or five hundred thousand dollars or whatever the case may be and anyway that's what they that's what this road is and people just drive around in circles to be seen and the people in the in the cafes kind of look up and they see the car and if they like the car they clap if they don't like the car they go back to their drink and their conversation and it's a very sort of marbella kind of experience so the time came around that it was time to go to this party and i will say that i actually received an invitation um on the boat um a young man, um, probably 20s or so, came down and um, asked me who I was, and this and the thing gave it. And they had my name. They knew who I was. They knew where the boat slip was and all the rest. And this is information I did not give them. This is information that they found on themselves. I just thought I'd just hop in a cab and go up to this guy's uh, house, which I found out was a palatial mansion, with all sorts of grounds. It was absolutely magnificent. And, you know, I would just go up there and wander around, have a drink, talk to a couple of people, and then come home and just be nice, right? But no, they had my name. They knew who I was. There was security checks done. They knew where the boat was, all the rest of the stuff. The, the young man asked me if he could take some pictures of the boat. He came in the boat and they took pictures all the way around. It was like kind of cool but freaky in a way and he says well i have to get these developed because you know back then we didn't have iphones so that went on i i knew i had to be there at um i was invited to show up around nine o'clock um which is actually quite early for spain usually it's somewhere around 11 12 o'clock that you show up um but i was asked to come at nine i said okay and so i got in a cab um when the fifth or sixth, where I forget which day it was. And I drove up into um, this area of very, very wealthy homes and um, really beautiful. And I, I will say, you know, I've, I have run and been on some of the best and most expensive yachts in the world. Um, and I have been around people that are worth billions of dollars um, I never paid them much attention, uh, never gave them any kind of special treatment. Um, you know, I've always been, you know, like the owner of this boat in Finland, he, he was mega rich, not a billionaire, but on his way to being coming one. And his products, I can say, touches almost everybody in some way. 
and so I'm I'm kind of used to that. And I, you know, I grew up. I went to a private school. I was with wealthy people all the time, even though I wasn't wealthy. But it always called to mind to me. So what is your, you know, what is your value? What what value? What valuable things do you have? And as a point and aside, right now, I just want to say to to people that cruise, you know, don't get so much into your cruising, into your monasterial life on a boat. Um, it you could you know you have to be able to get out and and integrate yourself, make some compromises, meet different kinds of people, and I'm not just talking about you know other boat people on the dock and things of this nature go to a movie go to a play um going to restaurants is great visit sites talk to people don't it's just not taxi cab drivers and stuff like that to talk to you're not going to get the nation the place you're going to be you have to find people that live there that work there that that you know have some sort of influence into how the place is either perceived or, 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 or influenced. And the people that help you, like boat brokers, um, the port captain sometimes can be like that. Um, if you're interested in art, um, I had some people along, along the way that were very interested in playing golf. So Marbella was a great place to play golf. And everybody... You could meet tons of people playing golf. So you meet a different kind of person, a different set of people. And this will make your cruising experience much, much better in that regard. So anyway, I, I go up and there's this big gate, um, you know, this, and then I'm visiting the, the Prince of Marbella. Um, I get out of the cab. I come in. Um, I have the wand goes over me, make sure I don't have any weapons on me. And... Uh, I, I walk up the steps. It's, it's absolutely beautiful with water fountains and stuff. He's just, it's a Spanish design home. It's just it is magnificent. If, if you had all the money in the world and you lived in the south of Spain, this is probably what you would build. So I, I go in the door. Um, I'm directed by a, a waiter butler, okay, wearing white gloves in a dark suit um, and a cummerbund. To, to walk um, back through the house, through this giant portico, and then out um, some doors, uh, some French giant French doors, they're like two stories high, um, out the glass doors in the back. And there was, oh, maybe 40, 50 people back there. Um, there was a barbecue going on, and there was a giant dish. And I mean giant dish of paella. And when I say giant, I have to, it, this paella, the paella is, is, I think we all know what paella is, is it's sort of a um, rice and seafood, and there's lots of different things um, that can go into it. You can put some sausage in. And essentially what it is is the Moorish kings at the time, uh, going way back, uh, they would create these rice dishes from leftovers from royal banquets and take them home. And, and paella originates from the Arab world of um, bakaya, which means leftovers. 
And paella also refers to the pan, which is cooked in. It means frying pan. So these giant pans, in this case, this pan was sitting on this uh, number of uh, propane burners. The pan was at least eight foot in diameter. This is a huge pan. It was copper. It was beautiful. It had handles all the way around. I don't know how anybody actually moved this. You know, you need need five people to move this thing. And it was filled with rice and and shrimp and langoust and sausages and all sorts of kind of stuff. The odor was just fantastic. And it is such a nice thing that this was going on. I mean, I stood there for a few minutes because, you know, I didn't know anybody and, you know, it was okay and this and other thing. And we're very close to um, Valencia in Marbella. Valencia is the original um, town that this, um, that Paella was created in. So it's not that far um, away from your basic uh, um, sphere of influence. So anyway, it was kind of cool, um, and I was I was quite nice. And a waiter came by and he offered he asked me if I wanted a drink, and I said, "Yeah, I'll take a glass of red wine, and you know this that another thing. What kind of red wine? I mean, uh, yeah, this is great. You know, I went all the way through the whole process with him. I ended up. He said we have this great Burgundy. It was very articulate, very excited. It was like a sommelier talking to you. He was very excited. This that another thing, and I suddenly felt like I wasn't really dressed for the place. To be honest, I was there and. I still had my uh, my uh, boat shoes on. I had on some uh, jeans. Um, I had on a, a nice shirt, and I had on a leather jacket. This jacket I had bought um, in Marbella, um, and it was. Uh, if anybody, if if you go to Spain, do yourself a favor, go shopping for leather because they have some of the coolest leather goods that you could ever imagine and spain is really the place and i mean they've been exporting leather goods in in from spain you know since christopher columbus days it's a a good recommendation as far as uh, shopping is concerned so i'm standing there and um i see uh, alcazar come walking over to me he's like hey how you doing and this and another thing and as soon as he said that, everybody, of course, in this place is watching him. They, he, did you get a drink? Is your drink coming? What do you do? Come on, sit. We're going to eat this, that, another thing. He says, I want to eat early. He says, do you mind? I said, no, no, I don't mind. He says, yeah. He says, get so many people in here. He said, you know, and and I just, I don't have time to eat with everybody here. So this is early, and that's why I wanted you to come and we could talk. I said, okay, great, you know fantastic i said you got a beautiful place there it's fantastic so we got a big dish of uh, paella which was ridiculously good and there was also some grilled leeks um that he said oh you have to taste these he said if you haven't had leeks you know like this he said this is where you do and they grill them and then they wrap them in newspaper and they let them they let them smolder so to speak and and get real soft and they were just absolutely delicious and um uh you know and some wine and stuff and we sat at a small table very humble small table 
And we just, he said, did you get your situation taken care of? I said, yes, I did. And thank you for speaking for me. I really appreciate that. He says, oh, no problem. He says, you know, like I said, right and wrong sometimes is very hard to figure out. So Alcazar was, he was, he, he was, he was very excited. So he was asking me questions about, um, about uh, yachts and what kind of yacht I had, um, what kind of yacht could he do? Would, would, could I actually help him, um, find a yacht for him? He says, you know, I've owned them before. And I go, Oh, okay. And, and actually he had owned not only yachts, but he had owned ships, um, and a number of the other things. Um, so this was a little bit, I might say kind of disingenuous in a way, but you know, he was very interested in the different yachts. So we talked about Ferretti's, we talked about fed ships. We talked about, uh, sailing. He, he didn't want to sail. He just wanted a motor yacht where he could entertain. And I said, well, yeah, there's mega yachts and you know, we could do it this way and you could do it that way. And we, you know, we spent 15, 20 minutes and then he stood up real quick and he says, look, I got to go, you know, talk to all the rest of my guests, but I'll come down and, and see you tomorrow. Enjoy yourself tonight. If I don't see you, thank you very much. And he left. So I'm sitting there and suddenly I am the center of attention. I have people wandering over to me say, hi, how you doing? Introducing themselves. You know, with rich people like that, if they pay attention to one person, everybody else wants that glow to be upon them. So we're sitting there and, and this guy came over, started talking. This guy came over, started talking. And I really kind of found it very interesting to have been invited into this world. Um, everybody seemed to uh, enjoy themselves. Um, there wasn't any kind of pressure. There wasn't anything nefarious and stuff like that. I had a couple of people say, hey, have you ever been up to Andorra? You know, it's up in the mountains and we come down here and people were telling me about the houses they bought and, you know, people that people that are new to money love to talk about the things that they've just bought. Old money never talks about those sorts of things. They talk about life. They talk about things that center them. They talk about things that are their interest, not not money. So you can always tell the difference between new money and, and old money. So the party was very nice. I stayed probably until like 1 o'clock. Um, there was some dancing. I mean, it, it ended up there was close to, I, I would guess, maybe four to 500 people. Um, I didn't see uh, Alcazar for the rest of the evening. He just disappeared. Everybody seemed to enjoy themselves. Um, there was a DJ. There was dancing. There were lots of beautiful women and expensive, very small, expensive Versace dresses. Um, I had a few conversations and then my spidey sense sort of went off. I said, yeah, I'm going to go back to the boat. So I left and my spidey sense went off because I didn't feel like I didn't belong in this situation. Um, I'm certainly know my value, but what I realized that a lot of people, the, a lot of the people that I was meeting there didn't have a certain kind of value that I had. And Alcas that's what Alcazar saw in me. He understood I was a yacht captain. He understood I had 
skills. He understood that I had um, a international sense of things, um, a political sense of things. He also learned that I was a writer. And in America, being a writer is not such a big deal. People kind of actually look down on you. They say, oh, what'd you do? do have I seen any of your work? Um, I had a friend who was a novelist, and people who have I seen your work? And he says, not unless you could read. And this was just like the punchline all the time. But in Europe, being a writer is held in very high esteem. Even if you don't or haven't written anything that people would know, just the act of being a writer is an important and lofty position. And when people sort of put two and two together, um, I had a very, very fine feeling that I had more value and more worth than a lot of the other people that were there who were just clamoring to get closer to Alcazar. And quite honestly, Alcazar's only, only, I'd say, positiveness was he was he loved his family. I uh, met his wife again. Um, she was lovely, um, and everybody was you know that it was a family life. It, he made all the money for his family. That was his goal, making money for his family. He had a lot of faults. Don't get me wrong. He's in he's in prison right now in Illinois. And he's not allowed out until 2033. So he's there for a while. And he probably will never get out of prison. Um, but in any case, that was sort of our uh, experience. I got in the cab, I went home. I came back. The next morning I woke up. Um, and when I woke up, I found the scooter at the back of the boat. And the broker for the boat was standing there with it. And, asked if he could help me put it back up on the boat. And he told me that all the papers had arrived, everything had been clear, and that I was no longer a, a, a suspect in stolen goods and transferring of stolen goods, which actually didn't relieve me, but it relieved me. So we put the scooter up on the boat, and about 10.30, 11 o'clock, Alcazar comes walking down the dock. Scott, hey man, how you doing? Bounces on the boat. He's got a bunch of other gentlemen with him who I have no clue. They, I don't know what language they. I think they spoke Syrian and all the rest of this kind of stuff. And um, you know, I wasn't. They were just like people that were just like, who are these people? They're like puppets walking around behind him, and. Um, I remember he was he was dressed in he had loafers and and um, very white pants with uh, no socks. He he had a, a linen white linen shirt and and he had a blue and white uh, sweater draped over his shoulders. Um, he looked very dashing, big sunglasses, you know, a whole shooting match. And he came on the boat and I gave him a tour of the boat. And we talked to him, and he asked me how I enjoyed the, the, the uh, party. I said I did. I enjoyed it very, very much. 
And we went up to the upper deck of the boat and there was the scooter was sitting there and he goes, Oh, this is the scooter. Yes. Oh my God. He said, I'll always remember this is the scooter that we met about. And he was kind of going through this whole process. He was very funny. And he said, thank you very much for the tour. He says, I'll look into it. I'll have my people look into the boat. And if we could contact you, that would be great. I said, yeah, sure. Whatever. He said, because if I buy a yacht, he says, I'd want you to run it. I said, well, that that's great. Thank you. I appreciate that. He said, yeah, we'll be back in touch. So as he was coming back to the F deck, the, the other people, um, these other men, kind of dark force, as I call them, were sitting in the salon, uh, smoking cigarettes in the boat, which is kind of not allowed. And, and, and my mate had actually served him drinks and they were drinking vodka. And um, uh, Alcacer, he sat down with him, you know, lit up a cigar and they're all talking and they're sitting in the back of the boat. And I'm like thinking, oh, he's stinking the place up with these stuff like that. So I went to him, I said, look, you know, we really don't smoke inside the boat because it damages it more because it's more compressed area. And if you, you know, if you don't mind sitting on the, on the aft deck. And he says, oh, yeah, I th oh, yeah, I didn't know, I didn't know. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And, and the other guys, when I said this, the other guys looked at me like, what, are you, are you telling him that he can't smoke somewhere? Are you nuts? Don't you understand? And then they all, they all sort of went to the aft deck. They were there for like two minutes. They didn't have any more drinks. They left their bottle, they left the bottle of vodka there. And they trundled off, and Alcazar said, see you later, that was great, thank you so much, and off he went. And I had never seen him before then. I had read about him because I knew, knew him to a certain extent. And I was very um, impressed with him, to say the least. But this is sort of the nature of Marbella where Marbella is this, this beautiful, absolutely gorgeous town with these sort of nefarious and con men and all, you know, where the slush of humanity internationally sort of resides. And, but it's still a wonderful, and it's still a wonderful and a, a wholesome place, you know, for the beaches and for the mountains and the food. The food is always ridiculous. Um, I, this is Andalus. Andalusian food is lots of seafood, lots of rice, um, a lot of chorizos, you know, sausages and stuff like that. Really fantastic stuff. And I could I could do twenty podcasts on just the food there. It's very fascinating. Very very good food. Very wholesome. Very clean food. So Marbella. I left Marbella. Um, only to return one more time. Um, only, I think I returned in 2000, something like 2002, maybe. Um, I returned uh, just to spend a couple of nights there. Um, it, was, it was very early in the spring. There was nobody around. It was very, very quiet. Um, no, no special people met, but... It's kind of an, one of those interesting, um, it's kind of one of those interesting places. And um, I hope that this story gives you a, a little insight and 
sort of the craziness of traveling, um, especially by boat. And um, uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you. for sharing scott so what is next week's episode about uh next week i'm going to do a little our christmas episode and it's going to be uh christmas in virgin gorda um again it is going to be about stories and it's going to be about all that uh treasure you might find under a tree thank you for tuning in if you like this episode be sure to leave us a review you can find past episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams, with additional music by Amano Itomi and Tommy Twain. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas.